You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning, good morning. Uh, My name is Grant. I am uh, the Timothy Track intern. I will be uh, doing the reading for this morning. So we are in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Um, and if you guys don't have a Bible, feel free to grab the Bible um, and the chair back, um, and you can read out of that and keep it as a gift uh, from Mill Creek. So please join me in verse 14, chapter 3. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from from foods that God created to be received by thanksgiving by those who believe and, and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here together as a, as a, um, as a congregation. Um, God, I just pray over, over Jeremy. I pray that he uh, uses his time here to glorify your word and that your spirit speaks through them, God. Lord, I pray for, for us to receive it not only with our ears but with our hearts. God, um, we're so grateful that we get to do this on this Sunday morning. So um, in Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. 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 So my family and I, we live in the neighborhood that is right across the street over there. It's called Leeson Glen, and that's where we've lived. When we moved in there, there were some lots that had not yet been built on. And so as the neighborhood looks to get completed, it has been fun to see construction operate on some of those last few remaining lots. And if you have kids and you've ever seen something like this go down, it's just really, really fun. You get a big bulldozer in there on day one when they break ground, and it digs this big old hole. And then you're going to get a concrete trucks that come in, the mixer trucks, and They even have uh, what they call a big pump truck. That's what they put the concrete to get the walls and framing. And all of it is just really, really fun and exciting. And even big kids like me enjoy going over and to see the progress of one of those houses. Well, one of the last houses to get built, um, family was watching when we realized that there was a different step that got interjected before the foundation footers were poured. Those footers are what the whole floor of a basement is put on. Before they did that, evidently, they called out some engineers and they took some soil samples and they discovered this thing isn't solid enough to just put some footers in. 
and great joy to my kids, but probably not to those builders. They needed to put in 16 pillars before they actually put in the basement footers, which means in regular language that they brought this excavator out with a two foot wide auger by 20 foot long and like a mega post hole digger. They just did these huge pillars, shoomph, 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 filled them with concrete, rebar, kids loved it. And then once that all set, engineer said, now you can put the basement on top of that. And they did. Well, I don't think Gleason Glen's going to have an earthquake or mudslide anytime soon. But if there ever is one, I know which house, at least for my betting money, I know which house is not going anywhere because I have never seen a house with so much pillar support as that one in my neighborhood. Well, this morning we're finding ourselves in the middle of 1 Timothy. And throughout this book, we've considered the seven pillars that God has designed for a healthy church. Seven pillars God has designed for a healthy church. And we've already walked through four of them. We've considered the correct doctrine of a church. The essential prayers of a church was pillar two. Pillar three, the gender expectations. Pillar four, the leadership of a church. Today, then, we find ourselves in pillar number five, the church's foundation. And like those bedrock-anchored pillars in that house over in that subdivision, the church has to have the proper bedrock pillar supporting God's church. All of this actually reminds me of a VBS song that I learned when I was a kid. Any of you go to VBS 400 years ago like I did and saying the wise man built his house upon the rock. I won't sing the whole thing for you. I know you wanted me to. But the funnest part of that song is when you get to the foolish man who builds his house on the sand because the rains come down and the floods go up and the house on the sand goes splat. And that's always the best part, even kids like me. The foolish man, he builds on sand. The wise man builds on rock. And I think the principle that those engineers were trying to get that house foundation is the same principle that Paul's wanting Timothy to get today. And it's the same principle from that funny VBS song. We don't want to build on some sloppy, squishy, sandy foundation. If God's church is going to make it through the storms that our culture brings and that the enemy brings, we've got to get built on the rock. See, either a church's foundation has deep pillars anchored in the true rock of Jesus, or else it's anchored in demonic doctrines. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. What do we do? Where do we go? Mill Creek, how would we evaluate what our foundation is? How would we, as Christians, look to see if the pillars underneath our foundation are actually anchored well? Well, that's exactly what Paul's going to do for us today. And he's got two big ideas in this passage. The true foundation 
and the demonic foundation. And because Paul has two big, big ideas, this sermon has two big ideas. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please open to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and following. I want to walk you through God's word to show you these two dimensions that Paul's teaching. And look, if you're new with us, you should just know our bread and butter, the way we do things here at Mill Creek, we are serious about the authority of God's word and then actually seeking to understand and apply it to our church today. So that's why God's word is going to be leading us in the way we preach. Well, let's jump into the first big idea, true foundation. Hope you've found 1 Timothy 3, 14. If you don't have a Bible, grab one out of the seat in front of you. Get there. We're talking about Paul expressing his hope to come to Timothy soon there in verse 14. This is why Paul's written this letter. Hey, Timothy, in case I can't come to you as quick as I want, Timothy, in case my flight gets delayed, this is what I want you to do with the church there in Ephesus. This is how God's church is supposed to operate. This is the foundation. And here then is how we have anchored this entire sermon series. See, if you were with us a couple weeks ago when we kicked off this sermon series, you might remember that this section, verses 14 to 16, is where we get our entire book in a sentence. That God's blueprint must be followed. That, that's 1 Timothy in a sentence. We must follow God's blueprint for his church. And if you say, well, how did you ever decide that that's the heart of this book? It's because of right here. This is where Paul is telling Timothy why he's writing. This is where we get the ideas of pillars. You see the word buttress there. That's this architectural term that is a support for a wall. It makes that wall much stronger. And Paul's saying, look, Timothy, the church has got to hold up the truth. And so here are the pillars that are going to hold that truth up. Here's the buttresses to make sure that the truth is going to stand. It's going to be anchored in the rock. Okay, pastor, but what is then the foundation for those pillars? Was, what is it all anchored in? It's the mystery of godliness. Look at verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now perhaps some of you look there at verse 16 and you go, okay, mystery of godliness and those six little statements that explain it. And, and maybe you're looking at that and you go, I, ex I completely understand what Paul's doing right there. He just took the mystery of godliness and he unpacked it in six phrases. And, and if that all clicks in right nicely for you, let me just be quick to confess, it did not click in for me. You know, you guys are kind enough. You, you, uh, you give tithes and offerings so that in part, guys like me can spend hours during the week to understand what's going on here. And this one was so hard, I felt like I was hitting my head on a wall for a while because I couldn't figure out what is the relationship between the mystery of godliness and the six phrases? What is the relationship between this mystery and the six phrases? Because frankly, I thought, wrongly, that the mystery of godliness, that that word godliness means something like my obedience, my faithfulness. Somebody said, a lot of times we read the word godliness and we think goodliness. So that's, that's what I was doing. 
I spent time in the study going, the mystery of my goodliness and these, these six phrases. What is the relationship? I don't know. Now, if you already know the answer to this, um, I would love for you to come Mondays at 1230 to come to an exegesis meeting because you could have saved me hours and we would just love to welcome you to that meeting. Thanks. Here then, here then is what I discovered. And this is the nut that we had to crack to get to this. The mystery of godliness, you've got to understand what the mystery of godliness is because it clarifies it all. Paul is not trying to get the Ephesian Christians to think that this is about their goodliness. The mystery of godliness is not what we do. It's about what somebody else did. Oh, that just gave me Holy Spirit shivers right there. That's good. Get this. This is not about your faithfulness and your obedience. That's not what the mystery is. In fact, if you look at chapter 3, verse 9, this isn't the first time he's used that word mystery. And that word mystery, it means that something, something, it's not something that's suspicious or something we can't ever discover. The way Paul uses it is, it's something that was actually hidden and now revealed. Which is to say, in the Old Testament, there is this hidden truth that once you see it, you're able to go, oh, that's what the whole Old Testament about. And you know that the main character of the Old Testament, it's not really Abraham, and it's not really Moses, and it's not really King David. I mean, good grief, if you've been here for a number of years and you guys think that's who the Old Testament's about, I've really failed you. <laughs> no, the Old Testament, who is the main man of the Old Testament? It's Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. And so I'm sitting here banging my head on how is my obedience related to what Jesus has done and what I've come to realize is the mystery of godliness isn't about what we do. The mystery of godliness is about what he did. I'm going to push this thing over. just got really getting excited now. It's early, but it's time to go. Look, what Christ did after his death, look at the six phrases again. Please, look at the phrases. Jesus was manifested in the flesh, meaning he really was resurrected from dead with a literal body. Jesus has real flesh right now. What a mystery. That's what Paul's saying. He was vindicated by the Spirit or justified by the Spirit. Jesus' perfect life and obedience, his goodliness, his righteousness, it was legit so that death could not hold him down. And when he was resurrected, it's the Spirit's way of saying, Jesus' death is sufficient. Three, Jesus was seen by the angels. Remember after his resurrection, who moved the stone? Who was sitting there waiting on the ladies to show up? Angels. Which is to say, I think the angels moved the stone. And Jesus, in the flesh, he walks out. My guess, he goes, what up, fellas? There's Jesus. He was actually seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. The disciples took the message of Jesus' resurrection and they shared it. He's believed on in the world. Just follow the books of Acts to see how widely the message of Jesus was. And then he was taken up in glory, which is to say, right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God in the flesh and he is waiting to return. And do you know what he's doing right now? So I know a lot of us got confused as kids because we think Jesus is in our heart and, and he's not in our heart. Uh, that'd be his spirit. Jesus is in your heart. He is at the right hand of God. And right now he is interceding for Christians. That's one of the things he's doing. That if we could get 
a live feed right now to the throne of God, there is Jesus Christ in the flesh interceding for the saints according to the will of God. That's the mystery. It is not about are we faithful and are we obedient. It's not about your goodliness. The mystery of godliness is about what Jesus has done. We're going to need a little more people than just Bob talking to me this morning, so let her rip. Way to go, Bob, being an example. So this is the mystery, and this is what God's church has got to anchor in. It's got to anchor in. And notice, if you've got the little Bible in front of you or the handout, do you notice how those six phrases are actually offset? Uh, the, the way it looks like in mine, it's like it turns into poetry all of a sudden. Notice that in the text. And, and what, what that's actually, what that shows us is, this might have been a song for the early church. Um, this might have been a chorus, a creed that the early church had by heart, reminding us every week that when we get together, it's not about what we did, it's about what Christ did. And I just want you to get this so bad, church, because perhaps a few of you, you drug yourself in here and you're just painfully aware of some really rotten way that you have failed God this week. Maybe this morning or last night, you realize, I really have no business showing up in God's church based on my sinful past. And here's the encouraging message if that's where you're at. It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ did. And all who would repent of their sin, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you think, well, how's that work? Because I'm a really rotten sinner. That's the mystery. It ain't about your goodliness. It's about Christ's goodliness. And if you're here and you're just barely hanging on because of what a sinner you are, good news. Join the club. Oh, I know I wear a collared shirt and I put a coat on, but I just do that for culture. Inside, we're all rotten sinners. This isn't some country club for people who have it all together. This is a bunch of beggars showing up saying we need Christ he's the only thing we got going here if you're here you showed up actually though and you're in the opposite place of the first example you showed up and you're just feeling like <clears throat> I've ticked every box this week I had a quiet time every morning too on some days because I was feeling especially spiritual this morning I got up I decided to read the Bible then my kids woke up I read them the Bible and then on the drive over we also put the Bible on audio so we could listen to it as we drove you're here, and you're feeling like, I'm actually really goodly today. Well, this thing confronts you too, because the mystery of the gospel isn't about how awesome you are. And we don't show up at judgment saying, look at my resume, God, look how goodly I am. The mystery of the gospel is all about what Jesus has done. That's the only way. That's the only way our church is going to be anchored is if we get what Christ has done. Here's what I'd love for you to write down, because here's the gospel connection that I want you to tattoo in your brain. The foundation of our church must be Jesus Christ and his gospel. The foundation of our church must be Jesus Christ and his gospel. We don't make up rules and pretend like following them makes us holy before God. We understand that what Jesus did 
is what makes us holy before God. That's the mystery of those of the gospel. This is the foundation that our church must be built on. And I am trying to make it as clear as I can, so hire an excavator and go get us a 20-foot gospel auger bit and drill that sucker down 16 times if you have to. Our church cannot move off this foundation. That's how a strong church is built on the rock. Amen? Good. Here's the application. Know this, friends, know this. Whether it's your first time here or you've been here most of your life or all your life, you've got to know that this is the true foundation for God's church. Meaning, genuine churches reject terrorism. This idea that if we follow enough rules, God's pleased with us. True churches anchor in Christ's work. I love the way Pillar Commentary puts it. In Christ's person and work lies the key to the strength and flourishing of the faith community Timothy oversees. Here then is the true foundation we have to anchor in church. This is how we make it through the storms that the culture is going to bring us because know this, the enemy does not want a church anchored in the foundation of Jesus Christ and it will do anything it can to get us off of it. That's why we've got to know it. Well, if a church is not anchored in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what would it be anchored in? And that brings us to Paul's second point, which is demonic foundation. Move with me to chapter 4, 1 to 5, as we consider the alternative to a true foundation. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, and we see that the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith, now, some folks like us who have an allergic reaction to charismatic or Pentecostal or spirit-filled stuff, it kind of makes us a little worried. What, what's going on in the text? Now, the Spirit expressly says, oh, pastor, it says, huh. What we got to know is the Spirit does actually communicate. Okay, well, what's the Spirit saying? And, and how do we know that we're not going to go off the, gar- off the deep end with this Spirit stuff, pastor? Well, maybe... Maybe in Acts chapter 19, when Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders, maybe the Spirit did something very unique in that very moment and communicated about what was going to happen at the end. Maybe that's what Paul's talking about. Or maybe, as Paul's writing this, the Spirit somehow helps Paul realize right now as he's writing this, something very unique is happening in which the Spirit is speaking through him. Or perhaps... Paul and Timothy know about a prophetic word that was communicated from the Spirit, and that's what's being referenced. Uh, Regardless, what we know is that Timothy and the church must be prepared that, for one, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Somehow, the Spirit had said, in the later times, which, by the way, later times means any time after Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit manifested in himself and Jesus has already been raised and ascended to heaven. Because some people, they read the scriptures and, and they hear Paul writing about the end times or the later times and they think, that was like 2,000 years ago. What was he smoking? I mean, some people think that. They probably don't say that in a sermon, but they think that. And, and what the New Testament writers do, and the ESV study Bible says this great, 
in the New Testament later times refers to the time that began with the outpouring of the Spirit after the work of Christ. I just don't want you to read your Bibles anachronistically and think that obviously Paul was off his rocker because he's talking about the later times when in Paul's mind, everything after Acts 2 and beyond is later times. And if he knew we were still here in 2023, he'd say, yep, those are still the later times. All of this is later times. And what Paul's saying is in the later times, some people are going to leave the faith. And in this sad church from the text, some are going to leave the genuine faith and devote themselves not to true doctrine, but to demonic doctrine. Like, I can't imagine. I can't imagine a church like Mill Creek or people at Mill Creek doing this, but Paul says, oh, it's happening, and it's going to keep happening. How? How does it happen? Verse 2, teachers turn into insincere liars. They don't teach the word of God. They've developed seared consciences which is to say, instead of sensitively repenting whenever the Spirit moves, they've begun to numb their conscience. They've become to deaden their conscience. If the conscience is a fire, they've allowed themselves to stay so close to it that the nerves of the Spirit no longer tell them that they are in danger and they have turned into liars with seared consciences. Like Hymenaeus and Alexander back in chapter 1, verse 20. Do you remember those two? They had seared consciences. They were teachers. And they had shipwrecked their faith. Like the Titanic, they're sunk. That's what happens. That's how this happens. Okay, pastor, but what are those specific demonic doctrines? What are they? Well, look at verse 3. Forbidding marriage. Something God called good, Genesis 2, they call bad. Requiring abstinence from foods. Almost every commentator I read said it's probably abstinence from meat. So they're, they're requiring vegetarianism. Again, something God called good. Genesis 9, we can eat meat. All the grill masters in the back said, amen, brother. <laughs> Say it louder for those people in the back. Meat is good, Genesis 9. This then is exactly what Paul wants the listening church to realize, that these things God created for our good, verse 3, should be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The sandy foundation, demonic doctrine, is taking what God calls good and flipping it. That's demonic. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Church, if we just did a little pop quiz right now and we asked you, is this true doctrine or demonic doctrine, could you now parse the difference? True doctrine, all about Jesus. Demonic doctrine, stuff that the Bible says is good, that people say, that's bad. That's the difference. Now, one important clarification here. One important clarification that we need is from a commentator named John Stott. Let me read this for you. Notice carefully, however, what Paul writes. Paul doesn't write that everything is good, 
but that everything created by God is good. And this church is an indispensable qualification since not everything that exists has come unsullied from the creator's hand. For the creation was followed by the fall, which introduced evil into the world and spoiled much of God's good creation. We therefore need discernment to know what in our human experience is attributable to the creation and what to the fall. And a flagrant current misuse of the creation argument is the claim that the practices of heterosexual and homosexual people are equally good because equally created. I just think this is so important for us to make sure that we are not drinking cultures, Kool-Aid. We've not adopted the cultural message. We have to clarify the difference between everything created by God is good, that's true. But that doesn't mean everything is good, that's a lie. And I've taken the time to explain this because this is the battleground out there right now. The culture is coming for us and it is trying to persuade you and it will even use some biblical-esque arguments to try to get you to think that demonic doctrine is the truth. And I'm telling you, it is deceitful spirits. That's what you're battling. So I'm trying to preach God's word straight so that you can know everything created by God, that's true. But that doesn't mean everything that we can think of is good. That's a lie. I don't want Mill Creek to get deceived and start building on sand. And I don't want you to leave genuine truth I don't want you to depart from the faith and devote yourselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. But to the specific issues Paul's calling out, start again, celibacy and vegetarianism are not God's general will for everybody. To forbid marriage and meat eating is to be guilty of serious error. Or in the words of MacArthur, Satan and demons constantly work the deceptions that corrupt and pervert God's word. Here then is what I'm trying to get us to see. We must not leave true anchor, anchored pillars in the gospel for standy foundations of demonic doctrine. Here's the gospel connection I'd love for you to write down. Keeping Jesus as our church's foundation frees us to enjoy what God created for our good. Keeping Jesus Christ as our church's foundation frees us to enjoy what God created for our good. Here's what I wish Wimpy churches would know. Wimpy churches, if you quit preaching the gospel, you're not actually giving people freedom, you're leading them to death. And that's what happens when you reject the true faith. Rejecting the gospel brings death. In fact, that's my whole sermon in a sentence. That's what I'm arguing for. Rejecting brings death to a church like a home that has a faulty foundation when the rains and the storms come it's going to fall and go splat and the church we must anchor correctly so when the storms come and the floods rise we are built on the rock here's the application don't deny what God has created is good and don't deny what God has created is good There's been times we've talked in uh, sermons or in small groups or there's some guys, they meet Wednesday night at my house and we talk about 
biblical principles and we've communicated this idea that there is in the Bible a line. Okay, would you say a line, one, two, three? A line. There's this line in the Bible, and the the temptation is always to go above the line or below the line. It's so hard to just stay in the tension, and we've tried to make sure uh, folks are familiar with this concept, that that if the Bible is a line, our tendency is to move off of it, and, and the way that churches like us are especially aware of the line is anybody who goes below the line. And so we're like watchdogs and the theology police. As soon as we see a church saying, actually, the line of gender, people will say, the line of gender is not a real gender line. God actually doesn't mean anything he says about gender, so do whatever you want with gender. And when a church says that, we rightly go, time out, you're out of bounds, throw the flag, make a call, foul. Or if somebody was to to teach at a church, Lifelong heterosexual monogamy is not God's plan. Churches like us go, that's wrong. And we would be right to do that for for churches that go below the line. But this passage is actually going after churches that go above the line by adding rules. That's the guilt, that's the sin that they're making. And that's what demonic is. Because we can have this tendency, church, we can have this tendency to think, Well, God has all these rules, and we need to follow those rules, but maybe God will be pleased if I add more rules. And so we go to small group, or we're hanging out with somebody, and we say, how's your week been? And and you begin to explain how not only have you been trying to obey all the rules God gives, but you've actually added rules, and you're really good at obeying those too. And what Paul's saying is, that's demonic, especially if you're trying to add a rule that says marriage actually isn't good, and eating a good steak isn't good. And doing such a thing is to buy into demonic doctrine. The antidote, then, to this false asceticism. Asceticism is what this is. It's denying yourself something good in an effort to please God. So so God says, here's good gifts, and you go, nope, I don't want them. That's false asceticism. And the antidote, then, is to actually enjoy the good gifts God has given you. That's how you avoid this to enjoy the good gifts God has given you. Which means if you're here and if you're honest, you'd go, man, I've added a bunch of rules. I've added a bunch of rules to what God has called me to do. And I see that I'm guilty. Repent. Christ died for that sin too. Let me read one last quote. I saved the best for last. This one from Stott. We should determine then to recognize, acknowledge, appreciate, and celebrate all the gifts of the Creator like mountains and rivers and oceans and forests and flowers and birds and butterflies. Church, we should enjoy the joys of gender and marriage and sex and, did he just say that? Yes, he did. And children and parenthood and family life. We ought to enjoy the blessings of peace and freedom and justice and good government and food and drink and clothing and shelter and our human creative creativity expressed in music, literature, painting, drama, sport, concerts. To reject these things is to abandon the faith since it insults the creator. To receive them thankfully and celebrate them joyfully is to glorify God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Oh, man. Now, I... I read a quote like that, and uh, I'll be honest with you guys, I'm a fundamentalist. And I know we take all the fun out of being a fundamentalist, but that's me. 
So I read a quote like that and I go, just, just one moment, you're going to enjoy stuff. Where's the guardrails? Where's the guardrails? You got, don't have too much fun. And, and, if, and if that's you, that's me, I'm, I'm confessing, and I'm making fun of us both. Because, because God actually is a good father who's given us good gifts. And, and somehow, folks like us who are so conservative and are serious about God's word, somehow we walk around with a frown too much, like we're going to a funeral. Good grief, Jesus is alive! You can smile! You can actually go have some food and enjoy it. I think we'll just have rice and beans again because we don't want to enjoy our life too much. Man, that's me. And so what I'm trying to get us to see and where this is correcting me is it's actually okay to enjoy God's creation. Yes, but where are the guardrails? Okay, fine. Here's the guardrails. Don't worship the creation. Okay, there it is. We worship the creator, not the creation. But if you're going for a walk and you see a beautiful sunrise and then you see the way the sun hits off the trees and the leaves, you don't actually have to feel bad like, I better not worship right now. because I know it's beautiful, but I'd hate to celebrate the creation too much. I might be falsely worshiping the creation, not the creator. Instead, you can just go, man, like the heavens declare the glory of God, yo, God, this sunrise blowing my mind, and you're awesome. And smile. And take a picture of it and tell somebody about it. Man, the picture isn't going to do it justice, but God's awesome. Or maybe, maybe, what needs to happen is, those of you who are married, men, maybe to obey this text, you ought to actually go take your wife out on a date, and you should go order a steak. All right, take your wife on. Both of you order steaks. In fact, I heard of this whiskey-soaked prime rib at this restaurant, fire. And what you should do is, you ought to go sit down, and you should sit there for a moment, look at your wife, and say, beautiful woman, beautiful steak, hallelujah, God's good. That's Christian! It's a gift, man. Hey, if you're here and you're like, man, I, I wish I was... Married, okay, let's talk. I'm happy to set you up on some, some dates because marriage is good and I want that for you. If you're here and you've got no business being married right now, that's okay. There's other good gifts in God's creation that are yours to enjoy. It is made holy with God's word and prayer. Thank Jesus and let us worship God through and with his creation. That's a quote and Pastor Marty helped me. Guys, we are not guilty of idolatry if we actually are worshiping with and through creation to make much of the creator. So no, steak is a bad God and marriage or a spouse is a bad God. You don't bow the knee to them, but they are a gift to you that shows you a wonderful and good God who loves you. Smile, God loves you and he's given you good gifts. In case you've missed the memo, Trials and tribulation and suffering are coming. And the enemy is doing everything he can to get to the hearts and minds of our people and our children and our lives in this church. He wants to knock us off the good foundation. And the good foundation then is rightly anchored in the gospel of Christ, not on demonic doctrine that denies what is good. So read God's word, submit to it, obey it, 
And may we have a foundation that never gets moved. Will you join me in prayer as we ask God to do this? Now, Lord, I pray that you might accomplish what you want from us in this scripture. Lord, we're sorry for all the ways that we have wrongly thought about, conceptualized your goodness to us. I pray that we would allow the mystery of godliness and Christ's perfect righteousness to lead us. Spirit, for those here who don't know you, I pray the true message of the gospel would work powerfully and you might save. We thank you, Lord, for your word and we thank you for this chance to unite around it. In Christ's name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.